Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas Eve. My name is Josh Loomis. Uh, I'm a church planting resident at Christ Community. We're so glad that you're here with us this Christmas Eve. Today we are concluding our Advent series on the coming Christ, prophet, priest, and king. We began the series with a look at how Advent is both a celebration of the first coming of Christ at Christmas time, as well as the reminder that we are still waiting on Jesus to come back. Two weeks ago, we heard from Craig as he spoke about how Jesus is our great high priest, and we are called to approach the throne of mercy. Last week, we heard from Paul about how Jesus is the greatest prophet, and that we're called to listen to him. This morning, we finish our series with talking about Christ, our King, from Matthew chapter 2. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I I pray that your Holy Spirit will be upon us as we hear from your word. Illuminate the scriptures, and may this message help us to worship you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The year is 800 AD. The church has exploded in growth, has spread throughout Africa, throughout Asia, and throughout Europe. The Roman Empire has been fractured and has completely collapsed in Western Europe, which has allowed new kingdoms to raise up and take their place in the world. One such kingdom is the emerging kingdom of France. And leading the kingdom of France was a king named Charlemagne, or if you're an English speaker, Charles. Already the king of France, he continued to expand France's influence, as well as the influence of the church. And when the year 800 rolls around, Charlemagne visits the Pope in Rome. And on Christmas Day, December 25th, he's dining with the Pope with his men, and as the story goes, while they're feasting, the Pope sneaks up on Charlemagne, places a crown upon his head, and declares him Holy Roman Emperor, which meant that he was now the ruler and defender of all Christian peoples. Now, historians have debated whether this is truly what happened finding it unlikely that Charlemagne was not aware that he would be crowned emperor. But what is evident from this story is that either the Pope or Charlemagne himself understood the importance of a man of humble origins being crowned king, or in this case emperor, on Christmas Day. You see, whomever helped spread this story to the Christian world understood that Christmas was not just the celebration of the Savior's birth. Christmas was the inauguration of a king. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see why such a connection exists. Our passage is all about the acknowledgement of Jesus as the long-awaited king of the Jews. And in Matthew's account, we see two distinct 
yet opposing reactions to the kingship of Jesus. We see a response of worship and gift-giving in verses 1 through 12. And we see a response of denial. Doing anything that's possible to deny the authority of the king in verses 13 through 18. Let's look first at the first response, verses 1 through 12. Read with me, starting in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So our passage takes place directly after Matthew's narrative of Jesus' genealogy and the story of his humble birth in a manger in Bethlehem. It takes place after all that we've read up to this point in the service. We're told in chapter 2, verse 1, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They approach Herod, who is the king over Judea, and say to him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now growing up hearing this story, we can sometimes miss how radical of a statement this is. Some Gentiles, who are wise men, possibly astronomers, travel from the east, they arrive in Israel. They seek an audience with the reigning king, Herod, say to him, hey, we're looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. Now question, who is born a king? And you might say, well, the sons of the reigning king are born a king. While that's kind of true, 
those men are actually born as princes who could someday become king. But there are many men who are born in a royal lineage whose crowns are taken away from them by rival kings or even by their own brothers who were born before them. We could read First and Second Kings in the Old Testament to read many accounts of children being slaughtered before they ever became king. I have a picture of King Charles' coronation as the reigning monarch of the United Kingdom. Now in our story, Jesus is at most two years old. Now King Charles looks a little bit older than Jesus would have in this picture. Why? Because Charles was not declared king until his mother, Queen Elizabeth, passed away. And he waited 73 years to become king. So I ask again, who is born a king? The answer is nobody. That's not how monarchies work. And yet, these Gentiles come to Herod, asking where the king of the Jews was born. And they reference a star. Because the heavens have declared that a king was born. Now the Jewish people rightly understood that when Balaam, a Gentile, speaks an oracle in Numbers 24, 17, that says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That this prophecy, made over a thousand years ago, referred to the Messiah, the one who would deliver the people of Israel. And his arrival would be marked by the very heavens shifting. But when these eastern worshipers come to Israel seeking that long-awaited Messiah, Herod's response is not one of joyful anticipation, but instead one of alarm. Verse 3 tells us that he and all of Jerusalem with him was troubled. He gathers up the scribes and the chief priests, the Bible experts, and asks, where was the Messiah, the Christ, to be born? And the scribes tell him that the prophet Micah prophesied that within the land of Judah, a town named Bethlehem shall produce a ruler who will shepherd my people. They told him that the Messiah was foretold to be from the line of David, who was from Bethlehem, and that Micah chapter 5 verse 2 specifies that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of this king. Now Herod, having heard this news, summons the wise men. But he doesn't do it in the presence of the scribes and the chief priests. He does it secretly. He wants to know, hey, when exactly did this star appear? 
Herod tells the wise men, when you return from this child, please tell me about it so that I too may go and worship him. Now we find out later in this passage that exactly why Herod does this. We find out that he has no intention of worshiping Jesus, but instead wishes to stop this king of the Jews of ever having the chance of being called a king. But I want to focus first on how the wise men respond to Jesus. Verse 9 tells us that after they hear that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they continue their journey. And when the star rises and rests upon the place where the child was, they see the star and they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Now, based on the information in this account, we know that this journey that the wise men have been on could have taken them up to two years. And we're not told how many wise men there are. Traditionally, there are three because of the three gifts. But it could have been more than that. There's at least two because it's plural. But we don't know how many. And I imagine that within this almost two-year journey, there would have been a lot of room for doubt. Hey, is this worth it? We've devoted two whole years to finding a child. What if this isn't it? What if he's nothing special? And yet, verse 11 tells us that when they saw the child, they fell down and worshipped him. And not only do these wise men worship Jesus, they present him with treasure. They bring to this toddler gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They fall before him and say, here's what we've brought you. And in that moment, I have to imagine that any doubts they might have had were gone. For they knew that this child deserved all of their treasure and much more. This is the first response to Jesus. One of wholehearted worship and offering of treasure. And I think it's no coincidence that in our passage, the Gentiles are the ones who have this response. As readers, we are meant to see the contrast between these wise men from the East and the response of the leaders of the Jewish people. Let's read about the second response. One of denial. Verses 13 through 18. Let's read. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child 
to destroy him. He rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was, was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You see, as the wise men depart, they are warned to not return to Herod because the Lord speaks to them in a dream. Verse 12. And because God knows full well that Herod does not intend to worship Jesus, that he wants to know the location and time in which the star has appeared so that he can kill the one who was born king of the Jews. Because any person who is being called king of the Jews, by Gentiles, no less, is a challenger for the throne that Herod sat on. But God, in his sovereignty, uses this situation to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. We're told that an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, telling him to flee to Egypt, outside of Herod's grasp. And just as the people of Israel, in Exodus are called out of Egypt. The prophet's words in Hosea 11.1 are fulfilled when God calls Jesus and his family back to Israel after Herod's death. The Old Testament tells the story of God protecting his firstborn son, Israel, by calling them out of slavery in Egypt. And the New Testament paints a picture of God calling his firstborn son Jesus out of Egypt. We're then told in verse 16 that Herod learns that he has been tricked by the wise men. The Bible tells us that he became furious. His plan to pretend to worship Jesus was unsuccessful. So his response is to take action into his own hands and to murder every boy in the region who could possibly have been the one who was born king of the Jews. And what we know of Herod the Great historically a man who murdered some of his own children, aligns with such an act. This is far from a kingly act. And Matthew knows this. Because in Matthew chapter 14, when we hear about Herod's son, also named Herod, 
Matthew refuses to call him king. He calls him Herod the Tetrarch. Where in Mark's gospel account, he's called King Herod. You see, after this passage in Matthew, he never again refers to Herod as the king. Because the true king of the Jews, the long-awaited seed of David, the true king has been born in Bethlehem. And no one else will be called king except for this Jesus. Now this atrocious act of Herod is used by Matthew to point to another Old Testament prophecy. The weeping and loud lamentation of Rachel for her children. Foretold by the prophet in Jeremiah 31, 15, as the people of Israel mourn the exile, so are the people of Bethlehem, with no king to lead them. Herod has shed innocent blood in an attempt to snuff out the Lord's plan for salvation. But the Lord isn't caught off guard. He isn't surprised by this act. He knew the heart of Herod. And he kept Jesus and his family safe. And as much as we try to deny the rule of the true and greatest king, Jesus Christ, as much as the nations rage against the Lord, as we're told in Psalm 2, His plans cannot be thwarted. Now, as I was reflecting on this passage, preparation, I kept thinking about Herod's response in light of verse 4. When the wise men first approach Herod, he gathers the scribes and the chief priests together and asks them, where was the Messiah to be born. But I couldn't help but wonder if they talked about more. Did these Bible experts tell Herod that Isaiah talks about the coming Messiah suffering for his people, that he would be pierced for our transgressions? Did the chief priests tell Herod that Jeremiah talks about the Messiah's new covenant? which would establish an era where the people's very sins would be forgiven? Did the scribes tell Herod that Ezekiel foretells this new covenant that would see the very spirit of the Lord being poured out upon his people, where dry bones would literally go from death to life? Did they mention that Daniel speaks of the ancient of days, the one who was present before the creation of the world, the Son of Man, that would be given dominion and glory to establish a kingdom that would include all peoples, all nations, all languages. Did Herod know what kind of king was to be born in Bethlehem? I don't know. I don't know how that conversation went. 
Because all we're told is that Herod was told of this rival king's birthplace. And his response was to murder every boy who could have possibly fit such a description. Herod says, take no chances. Kill them all. I am the king. And I will do everything in my power to keep it that way. Now we can dismiss Herod's actions as a man who was drunk with power. That he was so sinful and heinous that he would stoop to murder in order to hold on to his crown. But if I'm truly honest with myself, I have seen the extraordinary lengths which I have gone in order to try and hold on to the idea that I am the king of my own life. And I've seen this same story play out in the people around me. There's no need to acknowledge God. I have everything I need. My pursuit of money, of sex, of fame, that will fulfill me. If I can just work hard enough and finally make it, then I will feel like my life isn't one step from spiraling out of control into utter chaos. And I am convinced that people's largest barrier to accepting Jesus is that they are unwilling to step down from their throne to make room for the one born king of the Jews. I know for me, I understood that Christ was my savior as a young child. But when I was 17, I was confronted by the reality that Jesus was not just my Savior, but also my Lord, my King. And I, like so many of us, wanted to do anything I could to deny Jesus' rightful place in my life. Just like King Herod. Now to add some even more complexity to this idea is the fact that we live in the United States. And in the very DNA of our country, we have strong sentiments against monarchies. Some of us might be sitting here thinking, well, there's no king in this land. And if you try to give us a king, I'm flying to Boston. We're going to be dumping some tea in the harbor. And I can completely relate to that feeling. And yet, if we are to take Paul's words to the Philippians seriously, when he says that our citizenship is in heaven, and that we are to wait on Jesus, then it means that we are first and foremost, as Christians... Subjects of a king, and then members of a democracy. 
Now hear me loud and clear. I'm not anti-democracy. I think democracy is the best system that we could have. But I also understand that the kings and queens of the past have failed because their hearts are sinful. And I truly believe that we were never meant to bear the weight of governance. What we need is a man who is free from sin, free from temptation to abuse his power. A man whom the prophet Isaiah describes as putting the government upon his shoulders. A wonderful counselor, a prince of peace. The king that we serve, the ultimate king, the one born king of the Jews, can create peace better than any democracy. And church, the kingdom of God, the authority that we sit under, is not a democracy. Now that has significant implications. If we are to choose to be like the wise men who brought their treasures and worship Jesus instead of King Herod, who holds on with white knuckles to his crown, we must understand that we are servants of the king. We don't have equal voting power. It's our temptation to hear what the Lord is asking of us and to treat it like a democracy. Yes, I, I know I should read my Bible more. And yes, I, I know that I'm commanded to make disciples. But I don't think that's what's best for me right now. And God, it's, it's one vote against one vote. So I guess we're at an impasse. Or even better. Hey, I understand that, that you want us to invite our neighbors over for dinner, Lord. To be a light in our neighborhood. But the wife and I have talked about it. We're just, we're in a really busy season right now. And unfortunately, we both voted that this isn't a good time for us. So I guess it's two votes against one. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. Jesus does not make suggestions for us to discuss and vote on. He gives us commands. And he expects our obedience. And when we know the king whom we serve, we understand how much joy that obedience brings. How much of a privilege it is to follow King Jesus. Now, worshiping the Lord could look many ways in our lives. For the wise men in this story, it meant spending up to four years, two years there, two years back, in pursuit of seeing a toddler face to face. But when they see him, they fell down and worshipped him. The king may be asking you 
to likewise give up years of your life in pursuit of seeing people come to know Jesus. The king may be asking you to quite literally give of your treasures, to sacrifice part of your income, part of your time, so that the kingdom of God can be advanced. And this is where we can tend to want a democracy, right? Hey, Lord, I know you want me to give financially, but we really need this as a security in case something happens to our family. Hey, Lord, I know you want me to talk to that other mom at the park about Jesus, but it would be a lot easier if I just fit in with the other moms. Hey, Lord, I I know you're asking me to move to Champaign, to plant a church, but I would be a lot more comfortable if I just found an existing pastoral position somewhere else. I think I know myself pretty well, Lord, and I don't think I'm cut out to be a church planter. To which the Lord looks down from his throne in heaven and lovingly and gently tells me, Oh, my child, your imagination is so small. I have something far greater for you than comfortable. I know you think you know yourself well, but if you would just stop fighting me for the place on the throne, I would show you what you can become. Now, this is not easy. We must acknowledge that Christ being our king means that we have to acknowledge truths that are hard. That we have no control over our lives. That we were bought with a price. And there are expectations of us. That we are incapable of earning God's favor. And that we do not know what is best for us. And I know these truths intellectually, and yet I constantly convince myself that I know what's best for myself. And time after time after time, when I follow my heart, I end up disappointed. And if Jesus is the all-sufficient king, the foretold Messiah, It means that when we present our gifts to him and worship him, it's more for us than it is for him. The gifts that the wise men bring to Jesus, they aren't useful to him. What's a toddler going to do with gold? But the gifts instead are called treasures. Because the wise men gave of themselves to honor the king. The gifts and passions that God has given you and me are meant to be dedicated to the Lord in worship. Not for his sake. Not because he needs our worship. He's already the perfect king. It's for our own sake. 
Now, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus taking on flesh, of being born in a manger, a humble origin story for the greatest king who ever lived. And the Advent season is about the great Jesus who came as our high priest, the better and final prophet, and the ultimate and ever-reigning king. And each one of us has the opportunity to respond to that king, the one born king of the Jews. Will we fall down and worship him, offering our treasures like the wise men? Or will we deny his authority, try to dethrone him like Herod? I pray that all of us would choose the first. Which brings us to our big idea for this sermon this morning. Let us bring our treasures and fall down in worship for King Jesus. In the year 814, Charlemagne died. Wrapped in royal robes with a crown upon his head. And many would consider his death to be a great victory for a king. Dying of natural causes at age 65. Lesser kings than he died in battle or had their crown stolen from challengers. And by many respects, Charlemagne did what a king was supposed to do. He ruled with relative justice and he fought battles on behalf of his people. This reflected the idea of what a king was meant to be. This same idea is expressed in, in 1 Samuel 8, verse 20. The Israelites first asked for a king. They say, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. But despite all of his accomplishments, Charlemagne's reign ended with his death. Like every other king or queen in history. But there was one king in history whose story was different. You see, even though king of the Jews was written near his head, this king was publicly crucified his clothes torn and divided, a crown of thorns upon his head. Rather than the honor and the worship that he deserved, he was met with rejection and scorn. For the Jews expected that the long-awaited Messiah, the coming Christ, was to be a conqueror who would fight their battles on their behalf. They wanted him to fight Rome, to expel their conquerors, and to reign over them as judge. And again, the imagination of the people of God was far too small. For this king was unlike any king that they could have possibly imagined. This king would fight their battles, but he would defeat an enemy that not even King David 
nor Charlemagne, nor any king before or after him would ever be able to defeat. Because King Jesus came to earth, lived a sinless life, embraced the cross on our behalf. And King Jesus defeated death itself. He was able to vanquish sin, our greatest and most mortal enemy, that none of us can defeat on our own. And even though his body was buried, the grave could not hold him. And since that day, thousands of years ago, he continues to reign, awaiting the moment when he will judge all of humanity. That's the king we serve. A king like no other. And when we see his face, the only appropriate response is to fall down and worship him. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that you are the king. That you fight our battles on our behalf, God. May we grow in awe of you. May we fix our eyes on you and worship. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.